Grace and peace to you friends. Welcome to the Oak Tree Journeys. My name is Mandy Oaks and this is season one episode 52 of the Encyclopedia Challenge. I want to thank everyone for joining. Today is the 13th of February of 2022 so that means tomorrow is Valentine's Day and that's significant not just because it's you know the day of love <laughs> but also because I've got a Valentine's Day bonus popping up at 7 a.m. Eastern Time. So I'm super excited about that. I hope you are too. And I hope you join me uh, tomorrow for the Valentine's Day bonus. Now for any of you new listeners out there, um, like Sheena, thank you Sheena for listening. Uh, but if you're uh, brand new, uh, you may be wondering, uh, what is the Encyclopedia Challenge? You, you got my attention, but I don't know if I want to stick with it. Well, the Encyclopedia Challenge is where I read the encyclopedia to you in bite-sized chunks. So if you've ever wanted to read the entire encyclopedia, but you just couldn't find the time, that's what this podcast is for. Or if you're just interested in words, come on aboard. Now, there are a lot of interesting words out there and a lot of interesting people. So that's what we do. I read from the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. That is our main source. And then every now and then we go to the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. Now today, we are only going to hop into the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956 one time. So that's just once. And the rest is from the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. Now before we get into uh, today's words, I just wanted to... Remind you of our monthly quote. That's by Martin Luther. Not Martin Luther King Jr., but Martin Luther from a long, long time ago. It's, love is an image of God and not a lifeless image, but the living essence of the divine nature which beams full of all goodness. And we'll read that again uh, before the podcast ends. Okay, and without further ado, let's get into our first five words. We have Algony College, Algony River, Allegiance, Allegory, and then Allegory. And I think I see a typo in my spelling, so I'm going to mark that. Okay, so number one is Algony College, a co-educational institution, ME, at Meadville, Pennsylvania, organized 1815 and chartered the following year under the care of the Presbyterian Church. Its establishment was mainly due to the exertions of Reverend Timothy Alden, its first president, who secured a large amount of aid from New England, including the private libraries of ex-governor Winthrop of Massachusetts and of of Isaiah Thomas and Dr. Bentley of Salem, Massachusetts. In 1833, the college was transferred to the Methodist Episcopal Church, and it has developed in 1906 into a very prosperous institution. The grounds and buildings... Remember, this is in the early 1900s. Grounds and buildings are valued at $200,000. Productive funds, $450,000. Income, $42,500. Graduates, $1,386. Our second entry for this week is Algony River. Rising in the north part of Pennsylvania, unites with the Mungahala at Pittsburgh to form the Ohio. Though it flows through a hilly country, yet it is navigable for nearly 200 miles above Pittsburgh, 
Once by the Ohio and the Mississippi, the navigation extends to the Gulf of Mexico. And number three, Allegiance. And this is rather lengthy. Uh, allegiance, noun. And it means the obligation of a citizen to his government or of a subject to his sovereign. In the Middle Ages, an oath of homage or fealty was taken by a vassal to the feudatory lord. Violation of allegiance is the highest legal offense. Natural or implied allegiance is due from every native or naturalized citizen to the community to which he belongs. Independently of any express promise, every man, by availing himself of the benefits which society affords, comes under an implied obligation both to uphold and to defend it. Express allegiance is that obligation which arises from an expressed promise or oath of allegiance. The Old English Oath of Allegiance corresponded in the case of the Sovereign as absolute superior of all the lands in England to the Oath of Fealty, which, by the feudal law, all vassals were required to take to subject superiors through more than 600 years. This oath has been modified to exclude the seeming obligations of non-resistance. From the reign of Queen Elizabeth to the present time, the oath of allegiance has been required from all public functionaries before entering on their offices and by all professional persons before being permitted to practice. See Abjur, which we already did. By the law of England, and agreeably to the spirit of constitution, a usurper in undisputed possession of the crown or king de facto is entitled to allegiance because he then represents not the sovereign whom he has disposed, but the general will in which the ultimate sovereignty of England resides. In the United States, allegiance is the tie which binds the citizen to the government in return for the protection which the government affords him and in recognition of the moral bond involved in the social organism. The allegiance of a citizen to the national government is paramount to his allegiance to this particular state. Allegiance is either natural, acquired, or local. Natural allegiance is due from all natives of the United States. Acquired allegiance is due on the part of a naturalized citizen. See naturalization. Local allegiance is due from an alien while resident in the United States in return for protection by the government. The question whether a citizen can by mere expatriation devised himself absolutely of his American allegiance has never yet been decided but it is generally understood that for commercial purposes he may thus acquire the rights of a citizen of another country, and the place of the missile determines the character of a party as to trade. The right of a citizen to change his allegiance, acting under due forms of law, was declared by law of Congress in 1868 to be a natural right and indispensable to liberty. European governments have in recent years largely acceded to this principle. Allegiance is in its legal sense the duty to a superior authority, a matter of principle and conduct. Loyalty is earnest and faithful devotion under a high obligation, a matter of sentiment as well as of principle and conduct. Fealty is fidelity to a bond or obligation assumed. Okay, and we have numbers four and five are allegory. So let's look at the first entry of allegory, which is number four. A figure of rhetoric signifying properly the embodiment. Oh, wait. 
sorry, <laughs> scratch that. That's that's the uh, second one. Allegory, noun, speech or language which involves a sense different from the apparent one, a continued metaphor, figurative speech, language that has another meaning than the literal one. The Jews compared to a vine in the 80th Psalm is an allegory. Allegorize, verb, to form into an allegory, to use figurative speech. Allegorizing, allegorized, allegoric, or allegorical, figurative, in the manner of an allegory. Allegorically, allegoricalness, allegorist, one who. Okay, and number five, allegory. And this is the definition I started reading. So allegory, a figure of rhetoric signifying properly the embodiment of a train of thought in a visible form by means of sensible images, having some resemblance or analogy to the thoughts. Allegory, therefore, is one of the tropes, for it involves a transfer of meaning. It differs from metaphor chiefly in extent. Metaphor is confined to a single expression, or at most, to a sentence. Allegory is carried through the whole representation. It is not abstract ideas alone that are adapted to allegorical treatment. Not only may virtue and vice, for instance, be personified and treated allegorically, but real persons may be represented by allegorical persons. Allegory has been in use from the earliest ages. Oriental people are especially fond of it. As examples from antiquity may be cited the comparison of Israel to a vine in Psalm... I think that was 80. <laughs> and they... Yeah, Psalm 8, the 80th Psalm. The beautiful passage in Plato's Phaedrus where the soul is compared to a charioteur drawn by two horses, one white and one black. The description of fame in the fourth book of the Aeneid, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, is perhaps the most fully carried out allegory of modern times. Allegory is not confined to language, but is carried into painting and sculpture, and also into scenic representation as in the ballet and pantomime. The consideration of it is, therefore, of importance in the fine arts generally. Allegorical interpretation is that kind of interpretation by which the literal significance of a passage is either transcended or set aside, and a more spiritual and profound, or at least more recondite, meaning elicited than is shown the form or letter. The common mistake that it originated with the Alexandrian school is refuted by the fact that it is founded in the writings of older Hindu. From the scholars of Alexandria, however, it was adopted by the Jews of Palestine, of whom a particular sect, the Essenes, made abundant use of it. The Apostle Paul himself allegorizes, or at least spiritually interprets, the history of the freeborn Isaac and the slaveborn Ishmael. Allegorical interpretation, however, with reference to the Old Testament, was more was most extensively employed by Philojudeus, a philosophical Jew of Alexandria, and a contemporary of Jesus Christ. His writings stimulated the allegorizing tendencies of the Alexandrian school of Christian theologians, the most famous of whom are Clemens Alexandrinus and Origen. The latter went to went so far as to say that the scriptures are of little use to those who understand them as they are written. As a specimen of his method of biblical interpretation, we may adduce the following. He maintained that the Mosaic account of the Garden of Eden was allegorical, that paradise only symbolized a high primal spirituality, that the fall consisted in the loss of such through spiritual and not material temptation, 
and that of the expulsion from and not material temptation. Oh. Okay. And that the expulsion from the garden lay in the soul's being driven out of its region of original purity. The Neoplatonists were at first averse to allegorizing, but gradually acquired a relish for it from the Jews and Christians and applied it to the ancient myths. Okay, and with that, let's go to break. And welcome back. Uh, before I forget, uh, if you want to know how to spell any of these words, uh, go to theoaktreejourneys.com and select Encyclopedia Challenge and scroll to S1 forward slash E52 and it'll be all the way to the bottom. Uh, and you can look at any of the words and see how to spell them if you're uh, curious or if you think I pronounced it wrong or... <laughs> Um, I know that a lot of these are, are difficult, and some of them are not pronounced the way they are spelled. And my website will be in the description below. I just wanted to, to throw that out there just in case. And our next set of five words are Allegri, comma, Gregorio, Allegro, Alleluia, Alamond, Alan, comma, Alexander, Vietz, Griswold, D.D. And we're going to start with Allegri, comma, Gregorio, or Gregorio Allegri. And this is our one and only entry in the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956 today. So our one and only today. So here we go. From 1956, the Encyclopedia Americana. He was an Italian composer and singer in the Papal Chapel, considered one of the most excellent composers of his time. Born Rome around, they've got a question mark, 1582, died February 18th, 1652. His monsieur has particularly distinguished him. It is still sung regularly during Passion Week in the Sistine Chapel at Rome. Its subject is the 57th Psalm, which in the Latin version begins with the word monsieur, and it is composed for two choruses in five and four part harmony. This composition was once esteemed so holy that whoever ventured to transcribe it was liable to excommunication. Oh my goodness. In 1770, Mozart, then only 14 years of age, of course, he disregarded this prohibition and after two hearings made a correct copy of the original. So of course a 14-year-old is going to just disregard all of the rules um, and uh, press the boundaries. So my hat's off to Mozart for that. Uh, <laughs> always like the rebels. Go rebels. Okay, number seven. Allegro. In music, a term denoting merrily, cheerfully, the fourth of the five principal degrees of movement, implying that the piece is to be performed in a quick or lively style. Allegro, like all the other degrees of movement, is often modified by other terms, such as Allegro non tanto, Allegro ma non troppo, allegro moderato, masetto, gusto, comodo, vivace, assai, tumulto, conbrio, etc. And as a noun, allegro means a brisk movement. As a substantive, allegro is used as the name of a whole piece of music or a movement of a symphony, sonata, or quartet. Allegretto is a movement not so quick as Allegro. 
always got those two confused. I was in band. I always thought Allegrato was faster than Allegro. Huh. I don't know where I got that from. <laughs> and our eighth entry is Alleluia noun. And it just says, see, Hallelujah. So we don't get to sing the song. And Alle, Alleluia. Uh, which, ugh, forget my voice there. <laughs> my horrible singing voice, which I'll get to sing later. So those of you going to church with me, yeah, that's me singing off key. <laughs> All right, number nine, Allemande, which was a dance invented by the French in the time of Louis XIV, which again became popular at the Parisian th theaters during the reign of the first emperor. It has a slow waltz kind of tempo and consists of three steps made in a sliding manner, backwards and forwards, but seldom waltzing or turning round. The whole charm of the dance lies in the graceful manner of entwining and detaching the arms in the different steps. Both the dance and the music are said to have originated in Alsace, and thus the introduction of the Allemande at the court of the Rissals was a sort of artistic way of symbolizing the incorporation of the newly acquired German provinces. Okay, and entry number 10 begins the pages and pages and pages of people with the last name Allen. So number 10, we have Allen, Alexander Beats Griswold DD, or Alexander Beats Griswold Allen DD. And let's see who he was. He was born Otis, Massachusetts, 1841, May the 4th. He graduated at Kenyon College, 1862, and at Andover Theology Seminary, 1865, and was ordained a priest in the Protestant Episcopal Church in that year. He became rector of St. John's Church, Lawrence, Massachusetts, 1865, and professor of ecclesiastical history in the Episcopal Divinity School, Cambridge, Massachusetts, 1867. He published The Greek Theology and the Renaissance of the 19th Century in 1884 and The Continuity of Christian Thought, A Study of Modern Theology in the Light of Its History, 1884, both interesting in the Department of Theological Criticism. And with that beginning of the last name, Alan, we're going to go to break, and when we get back, we're going to start with more Allens. <laughs> And welcome back. Our next set of five entries, all with the last name Allen. And I'm just so I'm just gonna say Allen for now. And then their first names and any middle names they have. So we have Alfred, Charles, Herbert, David, Oliver, Ebenezer, and Edward Patrick. So those are our next five entries. So we will begin with entry number eleven, Allen, comma Alfred or Alfred Allen. And he was an author and playwright, born Alfred, New York. I wonder if that's how he got his name. In 1866, April 8th, he graduated at Alfred University, studied at the Johns Hopkins and Columbia Universities and the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, in which last he is now a professor. So he was still alive when this 1909 encyclopedia was written and published. His plays are Jack the Giant Killer. Oh, well, isn't that a movie now, I believe? A Burglar Honeymoon, Playmates, and Head of the House, The Cup of Victory with Richard Hovey, 
Chivalry, 1901, Cheerful Carl with T.B. Sayer, Playthings with E.V. Sheridan, etc. All have been produced on the stage. Novels, The Heart of Don Vega, and Judge Lynch. So there we go. Pretty busy guy. Okay, entry number 12. And uh, before we get to entry number 12, uh, since Alfred Allen was a writer, just have to uh, mention my writing group. I've joined a new group. I'm in about three or four uh, writing groups now. All of them except one are online or via text. Um, but finally had our very first meeting. And I just want to give a shout out to Charlie, uh, to Delma, and to Daryl. So, hey guys, uh, thank you so much for listening. We had a great time in our writing group, and I really appreciate them, and I can't wait for our next session. Um, they've challenged, they challenged each other to uh, write a story about skydiving. So, because uh, they all three went skydiving together. I, I couldn't do it. They, I was invited. Uh, it was last year, and I just, I couldn't do it for some reason, and I really not, I'm on the fence about it. Uh, I don't know if it's something I really want to do. Mountain climbing is more my thing. Uh, I would rather go mountain climb than jump out of a plane. (laughs) Um, Anyway, they're going to write a, a story about their experience. So since I was the only one who didn't get to do it, uh, I'm still going to write it. <laughs> I'm going to write a story to uh, about skydiving. And I'm not sure. Well, I had a character and a plot. And then I got to thinking about it. I was like, I don't know. But we'll see. Um, it's a good challenge. I, I do enjoy writing about experiences I haven't done yet. Um, it's, it's just a fun thing. Um, and then I, then I like to compare it later. To, I like to try to... If it's feasible to do, it's not always feasible. If it's feasible to do, I like to try it later to see if I got it right. So, and it's a fun little exercise, and then sometimes I do it vice versa. I do the experience first, and then I write about it. Um, It's a little more fun to guess what it's going to be like. Um, And I'm not always right. Uh, I'm not always wrong, but I'm not always right. So, I just wanted to throw that out there. Uh, definitely looking forward to to writing it and then presenting it uh, out at our next meeting. So it's going to be a really fun challenge. Okay, and our twelfth entry is Allen, comma Charles Herbert or Charles Herbert Allen, and he was an American di- diplomatist born Lowell, Massachusetts, eighteen forty eight, April fifteenth. He graduated at Amherst, eighteen sixty nine. Associated with his father in the lumber business in Lowell. Served in both branches of the state legislature, and in Congress in 1885 to 1889, was defeated as Republican candidate for governor of Massachusetts in 1891, and succeeded Theodore Roosevelt as secretary, assistant secretary of the Navy in 1898 in May. He was governor of Puerto Rico 1900 to 1902, and this is interesting. I think I pointed this out before, but the way I'm used to spelling Puerto Rico is P-U- E-R-T-O. The way the 1909 encyclopedia spells it, spells Porto, is P-O-R-T-O. 
So I don't know if that's just a guess on their part or if that was really how it was spelled or if that's how America spelled it. Um, but I, I would, I may need to look into that. <laughs> I, I might, I might look into that. I, I may not, because uh, I don't have a whole lot of time, but it's just interesting to me anyway. <laughs> All right, number 13, Alan, David Oliver, or David Oliver Allen, missionary, born Barr, Massachusetts, 1800, died Lowell, Massachusetts, 1863, July 17th. He was graduated at Amherst College in 1823 and became a missionary in western India from 1827 to 1853. He established schools in the province of Bombay, wrote tracts in Maratha, and edited a new translation of the Bible in that language. Oh, that's cool. He also wrote A History of India, Ancient and Modern, in 1856. And number 14, Alan Kalma Ebenezer. And this is not Ebenezer Scrooge. This is Ebenezer Allen. He was a revolutionary officer in 1743, October 17th. Oh, no, that's not in. These dates are really weird. So he was born October 17th in 1743. And he died in 1806 on March 26th. He was born in Northampton, Massachusetts. See, all these Allens uh, born in Massachusetts. I'm beginning to think they're all related he removed to Vermont in 1771, settling first in Pulteney, afterward in Tinmouth, and was lieutenant in a regent of Green Mountain Boys during the dispute with New York concerning the New Hampshire grants. He was a delegate of the conventions dealing with this subject from 1776 to 1777. He was a captain in a battalion of rangers in 1777 and did good service at the Battle of Bennington, took Mount Defiance by assault the following month, cut off the British retreat from Fort Ticonderoga, making many prisoners, and was promoted major. So there we go. And we have number 15, Allen, Edward Patrick, or Edward Patrick Allen. He was an American Roman Catholic clergyman, born Lowell, Massachusetts. There we go. <laughs> See, I think they're all related. In 1853, March 17th. He worked in the Lowell Mills as a boy, acquiring his early education at an evening school and from local priests, graduated at Mount St. Mary's College, Emmitsburg, Maryland, in 1878, took a course in theology, was ordained a priest in 1881, was president of Mount St. Mary's College in 1884 to 1897, and on 1897, May 16th, was consecrated fifth bishop of Mobile, Alabama. Oh, I know people in Mobile. Hey, people in Mobile. <laughs> you know who you are. So when this was written, he was still alive too. Okay, and with that, let's go to break. And welcome back. Okay, our next set of five entries. Again, all Allens. We are going to be in... Alan, comma, somebody, uh, all the way through um, next week. So we're going to end with Alan, comma, somebody, and then we're going to begin next week's podcast with Alan, comma, somebody. And I believe there's about, I think I counted uh, 17 or 18 more people after, the, and that's after this podcast with the last name of Alan, 
in this encyclopedia. Now, the Encyclopedia Americana did not have nearly as many Allens, um, but the Allens that they did have were already in the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909, and there really wasn't that much difference in them, so I just decided to stick with the 1909 to, to avoid the confusion that has happened in the past, if you recall some of those confusing things that have happened. Okay, so with that, our next five entries, we have Elisha Hunt, Elizabeth Chase Akers, Ethan, Frederick DeForest, and Fred Hovey. And again, all of them have the last name of Allen. Okay, so entry number 16. Uh, almost lost my place there. We have Elisha Hunt Allen, an American legislator and d diplomat for New Salem, Massachusetts. See, another Massachusetts. 1804. January 28th, died 1883, January 1st. Graduating at Williams College in 1823, he became a lawyer at Brattleboro, Vermont, but soon removed to Bangor, Maine, and was a member of the Maine Legislature 1834 to 1841, and speaker in 1838. He was elected representative to Congress in 1841, Removing to Boston in 1847, he was elected to the Massachusetts Legislature in 1849. Appointed consul at Honolulu in 1852, he held that post till 1856, and thence till 1876 was Chancellor, Minister of Finance, and Chief Justice of the Hawaiian Kingdom. Wow. Several times during that period and from 1876 onward, he was its Minister to the United States and died in Washington, Dean of the Diplomatic Corps. That's pretty cool. And our next Allen is Elizabeth Chase Acres Allen. Now they've got Chase and Acres in their own little parentheses. So we may find out why. Uh, maybe she went by Chase Acres. I don't know. That's actually a pretty cool uh, name. Um, oh, actually, her pin name, she does have a pin name. She was a poetical writer, early pen name Florence Percy, born Strong, Maine, 18... So finally, someone who was not born in Massachusetts in Maine, 1832, October 9th. She began to write when quite young, contributing largely to magazines and weekly papers, and published a volume of poems, Forest Buds, in 1855. Another volume of poems, Boston, 1866, contained the familiar song, Rock Me to Sleep, Mother, whose authorship has been claimed by several other writers. Mrs. Allen's claim, however, was fully demonstrated. Her other works include The Civil Silver Bridge and Other Poems, 1866, Queen Catherine's Rose, 1885, The Triangular Society, 1887, Two Saints, 1888, The High Top Sweeting and Other Poems, 1891, The Proud Lady of Stavarum, 1897, The Ballad of the Bronze, 1901, Sunset Song, 1903. She has been twice married, first to the sculptor, ben okay, here's where the parentheses are. Benjamin Paul Akers died 1861, afterward 1865 to E.M. Allen of New York. So Chase must be her maiden name. Okay, so entry number 18, Ethan Allen. And uh, he lived from 1739 to 1789. He was born, okay, so not another Massachusetts, born in Salisbury, Connecticut, but 
but with his four brothers removed early to Vermont, where he received his limited education. He became conspicuous in the colonial troubles between New York, New Hampshire, and Vermont concerning the dominion of the latter, and was sent by the settlers of Albany as an agent and afterwards commanded a force which successfully resisted the aggressions of the New York colonists. The outbreak of the revolutionary struggle put an end to local troubles, and the occupation of Ticonderoga became becoming a military necessity. Allen called together about 300, quote, Green Mountain Boys in 1775, May 10th. Remember, we, we did see Green Mountain Boys just a few minutes ago. Okay, so in 1775, May 10th, captured the place by surprise. In Allen's command was the was the afterwards notorious Benedict Arnold, arousing the commander at Ticonderoga, Delaplace, from his bed. Allen demanded his surrender in the name of the Great Jehovah and the Continental Congress. The place was given up without a struggle, and its fall was followed by that of the Crown Point. The entire northern region being thus gained from the English. Allen afterwards joined the force under the command of General Schuler and was employed in secret missions of importance both by him and by Montgomery. In an attack on Montreal, 1775, in September, he was captured and was sent to England and confined in prisons there, and at Halifax in New York until the spring of 1778 when he was released by exchange. The severity of the treatment which he had received while in the hands of the British had undermined his health, and he returned to Vermont after visiting Washington at his headquarters and tendering his services whenever they should be needed. Allen was a man of great force of character, an original thinker, and had he been educated, might have been made his mark as an author. As it was, he wrote the first work by an American in opposition to the Christian religion, entitled Theology or the Oracles of Reason. He was twice married and dying suddenly at Colchester, Vermont, left a widow and seven children. He wrote the story of his captivity in 1779 and Reason, the Only Oracle of Man, 1784, being a deist of the pain strike. See Sparks Life and Henry Hall's Ethan Allen, 1892. Goodness. <clears throat> so he was a prisoner of war. Okay, and number 19, we have Frederick de Forest Allen. And he was a classical scholar born Auburn, Ohio, 1844. So we're, we're not in Massachusetts as far as the birth. However, he did die in Massachusetts. So he died in Cambridge, Massachusetts, in 1897, on August 4th, he graduated at Oberlin College, 1863, and studied at Lipset. Lipset. All right, we'll just leave it there. <laughs> From 1866 to 1880, he held professor professorships in the universities of Tennessee, oh cool, Cincinnati, and Yale. In 1880, he accepted the chair of classical philology at Harvard, holding it until his death. He published an edition of Euripides Media in 1876, Remnants of Early Latin in 1880. A revision of Hadley's Greek Grammar, 1884, and Greek Versification in Inscriptions, 1880, besides contributing many papers to classical journeys and editing numerous class classics. I don't know what my tongue is trying to do tonight. All right, and entry number 20, we have Fred Hovey Allen, author and congressional clergyman, born Lyme, New Hampshire. 1845, October 1st. He graduated at Hartford Theological Seminary and studied abroad. Later, he became pastor at Boston in Abingdon, Massachusetts, and editor of the Suffolk County Journal, Boston, and a lecturer on art. He has published Modern German Masters, 1885, Recent German Art, 1885, 
Great Cathedrals of the World, 1886, Popular History of the Reformation, 1887, Glimpses of Partisan Art, 1882, Masterpieces of Modern German Art, 1884, Famous Paintings, 1887, Grand Modern Paintings, 1888, Bowden Art Collection, 1887, and has edited Life of Columbus, 1881, Life of Cortez, 1881, Life of Pizarro, 1881, American Scenery, 1882, European Scenery, 1882, Mountain Lake and River, 1883, Heart of Europe, 1884, etc. I was waiting for the etc. <laughs> Sometimes they put that in there. Hey, and before we go to break, I just, I've got a little story um, to tell you. The other day, it was super, super warm. I just hot. It, I think it reached almost 70 degrees. I was wearing shorts, but that's not the important part. I just have to throw that out there because I love the sun and I love warm weather. Um, my grandparents came over to my house and my grandmother had been begging me and begging me to buy carbon paper for my new top typewriter. She was so excited I got a typewriter. Um, and, and she begged me to buy carbon paper. I was like, I, I'll buy it. I don't know why you want me to buy it. She's like, well, you make copies. I was like, okay, I've got a copier. <laughs> you know, in my, in my office, I, I can make copies, but, but no, she insisted. She insisted I buy carbon paper, so I bought it, and I had no idea what to do with it, and she wanted to, to describe it over the phone while I was driving, and I was just like, no, 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 no. Next time you come over, show me how to do it. So she was like, okay. So the other day, she came over, and that is the coolest, uh, that is so, I am just so surprised at how cool uh, the, a non-electric typewriter is. I know a lot of people I spoke to who learned on a typewriter think I'm insane uh, for even thinking that because they're like, you've got to pound the keys really hard and and yeah, the uh, the save button doesn't work and the autocorrect doesn't work, but, uh, but I'm having fun with it. But I am so glad I listened to her with that carbon paper because she taught me how to make a copy of something using carbon paper. And uh, I asked her, you know, questions, can I make more than more than one copy? And she's like, well, if you pound really hard, uh, you can, but usually, you know, just one. Uh, she's like, if you pound really, really hard, you can make it. And so yeah, I'm excited about that. And then my grandfather um, had a surprise for me. He made me a flag, a flagpole. Well, he didn't make the flag, but he made a flagpole and he put a flag on it and he put it out in my front yard for me. So so that was a really nice surprise uh, from both of them, and it was a nice visit. So I'm glad they came over, uh, and we talked about a bunch of stuff. But anyway, I won't bore you with any of those types of details, but let's go ahead and go to break, and then we'll finish up. Our next set of five entries, again, last name Allen, George William, Grant, Harrison, Henry Watkins, Horace N., and number 21, we have George William Allen, Canadian statesman, born Toronto, 1822. Called to the bar in 1846, he became senator in 1867. For many years, he was chairman of the Committee on Banking and Commerce. In 1891, he became member of the Queen's Privy Council for Canada. He, present, he presented the city of Toronto with the ground on which is built the Canadian Institute. 
He was for a long time Chancellor of the University of Toronto. And entry number 22. Grant Allen, naturalist and author, born Kingston, Canada, 1848, February 24th, died London, England, 1899, October 25th. He was educated at Merton College, Oxford University, and graduated A.B. 1870 with high honors. Not sure what A.B. is. He became professor of logic and philosophy in Queen's College, Spanish Town, Jamaica, 1873, and was principal of the institution from 1874 to 1877. He subsequently in England engaged in literary and scientific work. He was a frequent contributor to reviews and magazines of graceful essays, chiefly in natural history with occasional excursions into history and social and political economy. Among his published works, most of which have been republished in the United States, are, well, if I could turn the page, Physiological Aesthetics, 1877, The Color Sense, 1879, Evolutionist at Large, 1881, Flowers and Their Pedigrees, 1883, Charles Darwin, 1885, Force and Energy, 1888, Story of the Plants, 1890, Evolution of the Idea of God, 1897. In fiction, the following are most widely read. This Mortal Coil, 1888. The Great Taboo, 1890. The Duchess of Palsland, 1891. The Woman Who Did, 1895. The British Barbarians, 1895. Under Sealed Orders, 1896. Okay, and... Entry number 23, Harrison Allen, anatomist, born Philadelphia, 1844, April 17th, died there in 1897, November 14th. He graduated MD at the University of Pennsylvania in 1861, was assistant surgeon in the United States Army from 1862 to 1865, professor of comparative anatomy and medical zoology in the University of Pennsylvania, 1865 to 1878, and of physiology from 1878 to 1895. He was the author of numerous articles and books on the subjects connected with his professorship and of studies of the facial region, 1874, analysis of the life form and art, 1875, system of human anatomy in 1880. In 24, we have Henry Watkins Allen, He was an American soldier and public officer, born Prince Edward County, Virginia, 1829, April 20th, died 1866, April 22nd. He removed in early youth in Missouri, where he was sent to Marion College. And I love how they say removed instead of just moved to. He said he was, he removed in early, (laughs) but, uh, but he moved to Missouri he subsequently became a teacher in Grand Gulf, Mississippi, studied law, and entered practice there. He raised a company for Houston's Texas War against Mexico, and after the war was over, resumed practice and was sent to the legislature in 1846. Settling in Baton Rouge, he was elected to the Louisiana legislature in 1853. In 1859, he went to Italy to share her struggle for independence against Austria, but arriving after it was over, made a tour of well, it says of, it says or Europe. I, I believe that's of Europe, which he described in Travels of a Sugar Planter. He was elected to the legislature in his absence. He was one of the Southern Whigs who joined the Democrats after the party breakup caused by the Kansas-Nebraska bill. 
At the opening of the war, he was commissioned by the Confederacy Lieutenant Colonel, later Colonel and Military Governor at Jackson. He was wounded at Shiloh, constructed fortifications at Vicksburg, was disabled at Baton Rouge, made Brigadier General 1864, September, and shortly after elected Governor of Louisiana. He was a vigorous and efficient magistrate with almost dictatorial powers. Well, that's not cool. After the war, he migrated to Mexico and started the English Mexico Times in the city of Mexico where he died. Whew. <laughs> All right, before we move on to entry number 25, just want to uh, give you a reminder, if there are any words that you do not like, uh, like hangry or moist, uh, let me know. Um, if I get enough words, uh, I may do a special bonus podcast about those words. But uh, send them to me. Uh, at, you can either, either email me or go to my website if you want to email me. My website is mandyoaks at protonmail.com. Uh, it is also in the description, or you can go to my website, theoaktreejourneys.com, and select contact and just fill out the little contact form with the word and let me know why. Uh, I would love to know why you don't like it. I don't like the word hangry. Um, it's because it just hits the ear wrong. It just, it's, it sounds, I don't it sounds guttural. It sounds like someone who's drunk would say um that's why i don't like it uh, i understand it's it's very descriptive it is a descriptive word it gets gets across but i just don't like it i that's just me so it could just be as simple as that it just hits your ear wrong um just let me know love 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 to hear from you and again if i get enough words i will do a bonus podcast about words we do not like <laughs> All right, and let's go ahead and move on to our last uh, entry for before break, which is entry number 25, and it's Horace N. Allen. He was an American minister born Delaware, Ohio, 1858, April 23rd. He graduated at Ohio Wesleyan University and after a medical course went to China as Presbyterian missionary. Going to Korea in 1884, he was in Seoul at the time of the d'etat of that year and saved the life of a prince related to the queen. He was thereupon made court physician and allowed to establish a hospital under governmental orders. He came to Washington in 1887 with the first Korean legation and returned in 1890 as United States Secretary of Legation. Won great confidence for sagacity and acquaintance with Korea and in 1897 was made United States Minister and in 1901 Envoy Extraordinary and Minister Plenipotentiary there. He has written Korean Tales, a chronological index of Korea's foreign relations, and many papers for the Korean Respiratory, the Transactions of the Foreign Society of Korea, Korea, Fact and Fancy, 1904, etc. Well, that's pretty cool. And with that, let's go to break. And welcome back. Our last five words for today's podcast. Uh, again, last name Allen. We have Horatio, Ira, James Lane, Jerome, and Joel Asaph. Okay, and so Horatio Allen. He was an American engineer, born Schenectady, New York, 1802, died in 1889. 
Graduating at Columbia University in 1823, in 1826 he was resident engineer on the summit level of the Delaware and Hudson Canal and was sent to England in 1828 to buy locomotives for its proposed railway. In 1829, he made the first locomotive trip in America at Honesdale, Pennsylvania, with the store bridge Lyon. He was chief engineer from 1829 to 1834 of the South Carolina Railway, then the longest line in the world, and in 1838 to 1842, was chief assistant engineer of the Croton Aqueduct. He was chief engineer and afterward president of the Erie Railway, consulting engineer of the Panama Railway and the Brooklyn Bridge, President of the American Society of Civil Engineers from 1872 to 1873, he invented the swivel car truck. That's cool. So we've got an inventor. And 27 is Ira Allen, younger brother of Ethan, and a green mountain boy. So I remember we've, we've heard that term before. Born Cornwall, Connecticut, 1751, April 21st died 1814, January 7th. He went to Vermont in 1772 and was an active supporter of Ethan in the Beach Seal proceedings. He was a member of the Vermont Legislature from 1776 to 1777 and of the Vermont Constitutional Convention of 1778, was its first Secretary of State, then its Treasurer and Surveyor General. He was in the Battle of Bing Bennington in 1777 in 1780-1781, he was a Vermont commissioner to Congress to contest the New York land claim. In 1789, he aided in organizing the University of Vermont, and in 1792 was a delegate to the convention that ratified the United States Constitution after Vermont's admission as a state. In 1795, a senior major general of militia, he went to France and bought arms to be sold to the state but in returning was captured by an English cruiser, taken to England, and charged with supplying the Irish rebels with arms, and only won his suit after eight years. Imprisoned in France in 1798, he returned to the United States in 1801. He wrote The Natural and Political History of Vermont, London, 1798, statements appended to the Olive Branch in 1807. Okay, and number 28, James Lane Allen. Author, born Fayette County, Kentucky, 1848, March 3rd. And that's got a really long line right after three. So I'm not sure what that's about. Um, but he was at least born in 1848. Okay. He was of Scotch-Irish descent. He graduated at Bethany College in 1867, was principal of the high school at Walkingdon, Illinois, from 1868 to 1870, studied law at Omaha, and was admitted to the bar in 1870. Having published his first book while a law student, Allen's Handbook of the Nebraska Code, he removed to Chicago in 1872, and there practiced law till literature led him to abandon it altogether. His writings are strikingly original, and the delicacy and strength of their style have attracted wide attention. In his short stories and novels, he was usually employed, he has usually employed a Kentucky background, and his, his Finnish literary style, though somewhat too highly elaborated for the taste of the average reader, has been much admired by the more critical. His prose is characterized by a markedly poetic cast, and his realism is, that, is of that profounder kind which concerns itself with essential truths rather than with photogra photographic fidelity to local types. Before I continue, 
to pause here. This is exactly what we talked about in our writing meeting. Um, your audience. Uh, if you want to use flowing words or or high thought, high thinking, and your goal is for the critical reader, uh, you're, uh, that's that's amazing. That's that's a good goal to have. So so this is really cool that he that we've got an example right here in uh, James Lane Allen. So, uh, so I thought that was pretty cool. We just talked about that, about how what one of uh, one of us, not me, but one of us, wants to write this way. Um, so I think that's a really cool thing to do. They comprise the Exodus of the Children of Ham, Aunt Viney's story, The Horseshoe Bend, Mars Breck and Miss Mary, The Bluegrass Region of Kentucky, eighteen ninety two. John Gray, 1893, A Kentucky Cardinal, 1894, its sequel, Aftermath, 1896, A Summer in Arkany, 1896, The Choir Invisible, 1897, The Reign of Law, 1900, The Medal of Pasture, 1903, etc. In an analysis of American literature written for the Bookman in 1896, November, Mr. Allen directs attention to the types of literature found in the United States and thus enumerates them. The only... Black Literature in the World, A Beautiful Creole Literature, The Literature of the Anglo-Saxon Mountaineers, The New World Literature of the Middle Class, New England Life, The Literature of the Western Plains. And number 29, Jerome Allen, American educator, born Westminster, West, West, this is Westminster West, Vermont, 1830, died 1894. He graduated at Amherst in 1851, was professor and principal of several Western institutions since till 1885, professor of pedagogy at the University of New York, 1887 to 1893. He was the chief agency in founding the New York School of Pedagogy and became its dean in 1889. He wrote a handbook of experimental chemistry, methods for teachers and grammar, mind studies for young teachers, and temperament in education. And our very last entry for this week, number 30, Joel Asaph Allen, who was a naturalist. He was born in Springfield, Massachusetts, there we go again, uh, 1838, July 19th. He studied at Wilbraham Academy and Lawrence Scientific School of Harvard and was with Professor Louis Agassiz in 1865 on an expedition to Brazil. That's neat. His department was zoology, and from 1869 to 1873, he was engaged in investigations in this line in Florida and in the Rocky Mountains. In 1870, he was appointed assistant in ornithology in the Museum of Something Zoology at Cambridge and received the Humboldt Scholarship in 1871. He was made curator of the Department of Mammals and Birds in the American Museum of National History in New York, 1885, which position he still holds. So he's only, I'm sure he doesn't still hold it today. So remember this was published in 1909 and he had yet to pass on. He is author of Monographs of North American Rodentia with E. Hus in 1877, History of North American Pinnipedes, 1880, editor of Bulletin of Natal Ornithological Club, 1876 to 1883, and of its successor, The Alk. 1884 to 1905, 
Bulletin and Memoirs of the American Museum of Natural History, 1889-1905, and has written hundreds of minor articles on ornithology and mammalogy. So, wow, he was busy, too. <laughs> okay, and before I bid you adieu uh, this week, just a couple of reminders. Uh, don't forget about the Valentine's Day bonus that's dropping tomorrow, 7 a.m. Eastern Time. Very excited about that. And uh, if you have a monthly quote, um, let me know. If, if, you, if there's a quote that you've heard um, or saying, and you're like, oh, that would make a good monthly quote, just uh, let me know. Uh, send me a line. Again, my email address is mandyoaks at protonmail.com. Or you can go to my contact page at my website, theoaktreejourneys.com. And speaking of contacting me, don't forget to send me the words you do not like. I would love to hear what words you just cannot stand and why you just can't stand them. Uh, I think that would be a fun bonus, and I'm looking forward to doing that if I, if I get enough entries in. Okay, and before I go, speaking of the monthly quote, by Martin Luther, Love is an image of God and not a lifeless image, but the living essence of the divine nature which beams full of all goodness. And with that... I bid you adieu.